This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I'm very confident that for some of you, this will make you a, a little cranky right before Christmas. So it is appropriate that we bring in the man who is the author of the Cranky Flyer blog. His name is Brett Snyder. Uh, he joins us now. Brett, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, happy to be here, but I, I'd rather talk about baseball or. <laughs> well, hey, we, we'll keep you online. We can you, can you can do it for the whole show. You can co-host this evening. That'd be okay. Uh, the reason we're bringing Brett on here is because I saw a story today, and every once in a while, you, something just grabs your eye because you think there's no possible way. And it takes me back. Remember the old Beatles song, "The Tax Man," where they talked about they tax the air and they tax whatever. Airlines have now perfected this, it seems. United Airlines today announced it would no longer offer free overhead bins for carry-on luggage. That's true. If you want to put a carry-on bag up there, you are paying for that space now. You are going to pay for that luggage space. And again, this is just the latest move, it seems, to squeeze every single last dime out of us. Uh, Brett, you write about this. You follow the airline industry. You are an expert on this. Is this in any way a surprise to you or to the contrary? Are you saying, I don't know what took them so long? Well, it's not really a surprise, but we should clarify here because what it is is they're introducing a new type of fare. It's called a basic economy fare. And so it's only those fares that have no access to the overhead bins. Um, But uh, they're still going to have regular economy fares, which will be some amount more than basic economy uh, that will include access. So they're kind of separating it out into different products, if you will. But will the basic economy fare that doesn't have it be cheaper, or is this now the bottom and the one that gives you an overhead goes up by a little bit? Well, we don't know yet because they haven't started selling it. So, okay. Uh, United will put it on sale after the new year. Uh, and then we can look and say, well, here's what it was, here's what it is now. Uh, chances are, though, in, in some of the markets, you know, especially some of the, the really competitive markets where they're going up against these ultra-low-cost carriers, uh, you know, those really low fares that they have in those, those are unquestionably going to become basic economy. And then the regular economy fares are, are going to be higher than that. Uh, but we just don't really know the details yet. Do you do you find though that whenever we hear about these things that people have the same reaction I did right off the top that most people, especially people who fly, and they go, "What possibly else could they find to charge us for?" Even though, as you say, I know you explain what it is, but it still seems to many people that it's another charge. Are, are people getting to the point where they say, "I don't know what else there is left"? Oh, no question. I mean, this is this is something that falls on the airline industry itself, right? Because when they all raced to add these fees back at the last awful downturn, you know, almost almost ten years ago now, two thousand eight ish, two thousand seven ish, you know, they were fighting for their lives. They were bleeding, losing a ton of money, and they didn't think about this and say, you know, this is a better business model. Why don't we figure out the the right way to roll this out and communicate with our customers and and you know, do things the right way. Instead, they just pushed it out there and said, well, we'll catch up on the customer side later. Uh, and so everyone sees what they're doing and they just get angry about it. And it's, uh, it's frustrating. I, I certainly understand it. Um, but, you know, as someone who watches the industry, I see what they're doing and I think it makes sense. Uh, but the natural reaction is, oh yeah, they're screwing me again. Well, and you, and you're absolutely right, I think, on the one point specifically, and that is, the public relations side, the, expl- the explanation side to the public has been 
lacking. And I, I was reading today in the story about this, and I'll, I'll quote directly from the story that I was reading. United explained, this is all for the benefit of passengers. United's president, Scott Kirby, told Reuters that surveys indicated travelers and employees do not like scrambling to carry to store carry-on bags in limited overhead bins. So somehow, and I think this is what is going to drive some people even more nuts, Brett, is that not only are we feeling like we're being charged more, but now they're telling us, oh, but this is really for your betterment. At least, I think, if P- if they said, listen, costs are bad, the economy's rough, we, I'm sorry, we have to raise some prices, and rather than do it across the board, we're going to let you pick and choose what you'd like to pay for. Trying to convince us that this is really something we want, it, that, that kind of makes our, our backup, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that drives me nuts when I hear that, because the reality is, yes, this actually may be a better experience for people, but it's not why United's doing this. United is not doing this out of the generosity. <laughs> Philanthropically, heart, yeah. Right? I mean, the, so, the, listen, I mean, the point being today, uh, you know, you board a United flight, they have different group numbers up three, four, five, whatever it is. You know if you're the in the back half of the people on that airplane, you, you probably know that, you know, they're going to have to gate check your bag and there's not going to be room for it. Um, so what this is going to do is is the people that have basic economy fares they will be the last people to board. They'll be in group five. And so now they'll actually know at the time they buy their ticket that they're not going to be able to bring a carry-on bag on, uh, as opposed to just finding out at the gate and getting in an argument and you know being angry and frustrated. So there is a benefit, but that's not why United is doing it. So I hate when, they, when you see that kind of explanation uh, you know, about it, uh, and, you know, maybe it's a benefit, but it just sounds hollow to me. Well, yeah. And again, I think that most people would understand it's a tough economy. And so listen, if you really want to fly just with the clothes on your back, you, we will give you the cheapest possible ticket price and everything you do above that, we're going to charge you a little more. I think if they were direct, people might not like it, but at least they'd say, all right. I mean, I, I kind of get where they're coming from. This though, sounds like you're being fooled. Right, yeah, that, and that's the problem. I mean, you know, what they're looking at here is, is look over in Europe in particular, where Ryanair and EasyJet and Wizz Air and, and a few others have really taken over much of the continental market uh, for travel within Europe. It's these low-cost carriers with this type of model. And here in the U.S., uh, we've been slower to, uh, to have that, uh, and in Canada as well. Um, you know, we've been slower to have that model here. Southwest in the U.S. kind of had that old-school, low-cost carrier model for a long time uh, that prevented others from starting up. But now you see Spirit, Allegiant, uh, Frontier really growing a lot, seeing opportunity. And the big guys are looking at this and saying, well, we need to figure out how we can really compete with them. And one of the ways they do that is by offering a really low fare with few amenities uh, that allows them to compete uh, with these ultra-low-cost carriers and, and not get completely run over in the process of, of these guys. Um, so it, it makes sense, but, um, you know, tell people that. <laughs> Find out a way to explain what you're doing here and, and you're trying to be competitive and give people what they want. Does this open a door, in a sense, for some carrier or carriers? Because you've now got these these companies that are trying to shave every dime, so we're bringing it right down to the bone. We're going to scrape all the meat right off and you get to fly bare bones. And the other ones, we have the... Um, Oh, what's the one that goes to the Middle East where it's like $30,000 a flight, um, um, you know, where it's just 
You're talking about like the uh, Emirates residence where you yeah. have your own private yeah, Emirates. Yeah. Okay, so you've got the you got the two or Emirates. Too, yeah, so. the ends of the extreme. Is there a door that's open for some to say, you know what, we're going to now charge you an extra fifty or sixty bucks more than you're going to get? But I tell you what, you're going to get this and this and this, and it's going to be a a really comfortable flight for a sl- a tiny bit more. Or does that already exist a lot of the places? Well, it. <laughs> There is that possibility, uh, but it does exist in some places. I mean, you, you can look in the U.S. and you can look at an airline like JetBlue, uh, which can often command a premium because they have a superior product. Uh, same thing about Virgin America, although they're about to be merged into Alaska, which Alaska as well is another airline that people think of as kind of a more kind and humane uh, airline in, in that sense. Um, but the really big guys, what they're doing is they're saying, we want to cater to everyone. So, you know, if you want a a fantastic flatbed and business class and meals and lounges and all that stuff, we're going to have that at the front of the plane. Uh, you know, if you want some extra legroom, we're going to have that in the middle of the plane. Uh, but, you know, if all you really care about is price and you just need to get somewhere, and there are a whole lot of people that all they care about is price. They want to spend their money when they get somewhere. They don't want to spend it on the flight. Uh, then, you know, we're going to offer you that as well. Uh, so they're really just trying to differentiate. And you can still go on United. You know, you'll still be able to get a more traditional experience with them if you buy the higher fare. So it's really just a matter of getting what you pay for. So walk me through, if you can, and you don't, I didn't ask you to write this down in front of you, so it's going to be off memory, but what are, what are the things in recent years that have actually either been removed or we now pay for that we, when we go on a flight compared to 10 or 12 or 20 years ago? We now got overhead sure. bins. Well, what I mean, else? Well, the biggest thing of all was check baggage. Uh, that, that's been the biggest fee that, that's come out for that. Uh, and that, the second, it used to be two bags for free for most people. Uh, you know, initially some airlines uh, started rolling out the second check bag would start costing money. Then it became the first check bag. Um, there are meals. Now, now, meals were a little different in that many airlines just removed them completely, uh, at least on shorter flights. Uh, and then they started putting them back and offering them for sale. They're uh, higher quality usually, but, you know, put those out there. Um, change fees, there have always been change fees. They've gone up a lot, though, so that's, that's the other thing that's a big generator. Um, but then they've added new products as well. I mean, there's Wi-Fi, uh, which didn't exist before. They put it on there and charge for it. Uh, they have these, uh, you know, extra legroom seats. Um, when United first rolled out Economy Plus, for example, you couldn't buy your way in there. It was just something that was for elite travelers in the Mileage Plus program. Uh, now you can pay to sit up there. Uh, but some airlines are, are charging for any seat assignment, um, mostly the ultra-low-cost carriers. But even airlines like American, uh, you'll find a lot of regular kind of seats that they just block and you can pay to sit there if you want to, but you don't get extra legroom, you don't get anything else. So there are a lot of, of pieces that have been pulled out of the uh, of the total experience. That you and I'll let you go. We got to get we got to go here. But that's the one thing. Other, one other thing that I think really has driven some people crazy. Maybe because they didn't know they had to do this. But the the one complaint you hear, at least I've heard more than anything, is I didn't know I had to pay a premium to sit next to my family member. And that's the one that catches, I think, a lot of people still off guard, and they go, come on, I bought a seat, and I have to now pay extra to be with someone I like? Yeah, well, or, you know, maybe it's a benefit for some people, <laughs> but that's a whole different issue. But, uh, 
But no, you're right. Uh, it, it's tough to do that. The more seats that they start charging for, the harder it is to get seats next to someone. Um, you know, down in the U.S. here, the government is trying to fix that problem when it comes to kids. Uh, they're going to start eventually mandating that kids have to be sat next to their parents. That sort of seems like common sense. Yep. It's a little kid. Uh, but um, otherwise, yeah, it, it really comes down to, you know, pay pay for what you want. Uh, and if you look at airfares going back 20, 30, 40 years, they have come down a lot. And now they're just trying to adapt the model from what it used to be as a an all-inclusive type of thing to saying, if you really care about sitting next to someone, then you got to pay for it. That is uh, Brett Snyder of the Cranky Flyer blog, Cranky Flyer, F-L-I-E-R, crankyflyer.com. Uh, lots of stuff about the airline industry, lots of great stuff on there. Brett, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. You're welcome. Um, one thing I will say, and, I, and this has got nothing to do with paying for seats, well, it kind of does, or anything else. But we often, when we have to, when we're going down south, if we're going away for a while, I, I fall into that category that Brett described where we want to get to the place we're going to and save our money. We'll take a cheaper flight. I'll fly at a worse time. Maybe it makes me cheap. I don't know. But I'd rather spend the money when I'm at my vacation rather than getting there. So we often will take uh, an airline, which I won't mention necessarily, that flies out of Buffalo, where you don't have assigned seats until you get there. Well, here's the thing then. And I will just say this as a personal plea to those of you out there who fly that airline. Again, I won't say the name, but it rhymes with blouth blessed. <laughs> uh, if you do not have an assigned seat, meaning you are going to be very likely sitting next to a stranger. And depending on when you board, you may be sitting in the middle seat of three as a favor to your fellow human beings, bathe before leaving for the airport. That's all I'm saying. There is literally nothing worse than getting on the plane, sitting in your seat, having someone come down the aisle and yours is the last seat beside you. And I'm sorry if this is upsetting anybody, if this is offending anybody, if it is, then it probably means you need to fall into this category. But when they sit beside you, and they have not met a bar of soap in a few days. I'm sorry, that is repulsive. That is repulsive. I can deal with almost anything else. Crying baby, no problem. Someone who's got the sniffles, not ideal. I'll live with it. Nothing you can do about that. Someone who's overweight, again, not ideal if they're, I mean, I'm not talking about a little, I mean, we get it. You know, okay. I'll, I'll, I'm compassionate. I will live with that. That's fine. I'll deal with it. But the person who simply shows up to fly next to somebody in a confined public space and has not had the good sense and the common courtesy to make sure they don't stink. I'm sorry. That goes over the bounds. Have a shower before you fly on a public plane. If you got your own private jet, I don't care. Smell all you want. But the thing about showing up with B.O., I'm sorry, that is just gross and unfriendly to your friend, to your fellow flyers. Just saying. I hope I would never do that. I make a point of not doing that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. When I was driving in tonight to come down to the show, it was snowing, wet snow, but it was snowing nonetheless. So, of course, it seems like an ideal time 
to chat about baseball. What better to talk about on a cold, snowy, rain, snowy December night than baseball? Feelings of summer, the smell of fresh cut grass, all that good stuff. But then again, we now live in an area in Blue Jay land where baseball talk never really goes out of vogue. We talk about baseball all the time now. Leafs aren't quite there yet. Ticats, Raptors, yeah, they're doing very well for sure, but the Jays are the talk. So especially, especially because we're in the winter meetings and guys are getting signed left, right, and center, just not by the Blue Jays, at least not the guys that people want to be signed. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH Sports, who just finished his sports cast on CHCH, joins us now. Bubba, how are you this evening? Bonjour, monsieur. How are you? Well, um... If you're a Jays fan, let me put it this way. If you're a Jays fan... That was my perspective, I mean... And you just watched the Boston Red Sox trade for Chris Sale, arguably the best left-handed starting pitcher outside of Clayton Kershaw in the major leagues, and some days as good as Clayton Kershaw. Not every day, but some days. And then sign or trade for Tyler Thornburg, Thornburg, who is an excellent setup man from Milwaukee. And then make a very small, but maybe... Important, I don't know, move to sign Mitch Moreland, a former Texas first baseman. We know him best for screwing up that double play that led to the Jose Bautista home run ball a couple of years ago. Um, but you're looking at all this stuff going on in your division, and you're looking at the Jays signing Steve P- uh, Pence. What's his name? Steve Pierce? I can't even remember his name now. Yeah. And um, and Kendris Morales, and you're saying what? Well, I mean, you're saying that uh, one team is going out and spending a lot of money and one team is being, uh, at least they would call it being fiscally responsible with the budget and getting value players for shorter-term contracts. So, um, you know, it depends on your on your philosophy, I guess, in building a, a baseball team. And the Blue Jays are taking a different route than what we saw in the final year of Alex Anthopoulos' con- um, tenure as the general manager of the Blue Jays, that's for sure. But I think the Blue Jays and their current uh, Ross Atkins and Shapiro, they're looking at the long term and trying to figure out creative ways of being as productive as they were in the last couple of years by using by spending maybe a little bit less money. Um, uh, I mean, we could all we could argue to the cows come come home if 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 they should be dickering between four years and five years on a contract for Edwin Encarnacion, who's a proven talent at 34 years old, and I think can be just as good as he was last year. Um, next year. So, um, I mean, it, it depends on the way you're looking at the way a team should be built, Scott. Uh, I, well, and again, I'm looking at this thing right now, and I think as a Jays fan, you're in a small bit of panic. And whether or not you think that Jose Bautista should be re-signed, I don't hear many people saying that they think he should. I think the people have said, okay, fine, we can cut Ed, we can cut Jose Bautista loose. That's okay. We can live with that. And even if you say we're not going to sign Edwin Encarnacion to the kind of money that he seemingly wants, I think Jays fans are saying, all right, you know, if he's looking for more than 80 million bucks over four years, you know, that's that's crazy money, so we're not going to go for that. But you're in a division that does spend money. The Yankees spend money. The Orioles spend money. The Red Sox spend money. If you're going to compete, you've yeah, got to spend money. You, yeah, you have to. You certainly do, and I don't. I wouldn't even say just me. I mean, that's Major League Baseball. I mean, it's the going rate. If you're a free agent, it's your time to, to cash out. And I don't blame... Um, Encarnacion or any player for that matter for trying to get what they believe they're worth out in the open market and sometimes the agent overvalues and maybe that's a situation we're hearing with Encarnacion but I still believe he's going to get his his $100 million contract somewhere and if not he's going to sign short term for big big money Um, 
but it, as you said, yeah, you're right. It's it's very very difficult when you're in the American League East in a division that does spend money. The Yankees actually have backed off in the last couple of years and have under the cash under under um, uh, the ca- uh, the new the new regime there. Um, are trying to spend less money, and but I mean, when they got a, a Matt Holiday for a one-year contract, they paid big money too. So I, I, I don't know what you want to think. I mean, well, just wait with the Yankees. Just wait till Bryce Harper and Mike Trout become free agents and see how restricted they are. Well, and you're, and you're totally correct with that because that's that, that's why they could maybe are sitting around and putzing around because they they believe that they can outbid um, you know some of those smaller market teams, including the Washington Nationals. Then, and getting some big, big, huge MVP type players because their team, their their fans have been patient over the last couple of years. They really haven't competed. They made a nice run last year, and I'll give them credit too. A lot of people are just, I mean, if they, I gotta say, disrespecting the Yankees a little bit because they've actually been able to develop some really, really good young players. And we didn't even see Bird last year at first base because he missed the whole season with injury. So uh, they're 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 stockpiling something pretty good there, and the Blue Jays are are you know hey they're they they have a management that uh, built a winning team with the Cleveland Indians for years and years didn't win any uh, World Series but they were competitive and I think you can only hope that your team is competitive Scott and and I think the Blue Jays are still going to be competitive. The question I have though about this whole thing is it was we saw what happened. A year and a half ago, August 1st or July 31st or August, whatever it was, when Tulowitzki came and when, when uh, Alex Anthopoulos made all those moves, the city of Toronto and the surrounding region, Blue Jay country went bananas. And you have had full houses or close to it since. And I look at this and I think it took, you lost, you didn't lose a generation, but you, you turned off a generation of baseball fans after the last strike in 94, the Jays had won back to back and then they didn't. If you go back to being mediocre, I think you take a whole lot of those fans and you send them elsewhere. I, I don't think you're going to see the numbers. I don't think that it is, these aren't Leaf fans. These aren't, I'll come out no matter what the team is doing fans. These are people who come out to watch a winner and you risk, if by not spending money, you risk losing money. Uh, you know, maybe the the duo, the, the duo Shapiro and like this leadership group, I still think they are riding a bit of a free pass because, let's be honest, the, the narrative right now, last year, was very negative for those two. Um, but they produced last year in a team that went just as far as Alex Anthopoulos' team, exactly as far. So maybe the jury's still out right now. I still believe that they're going to sell out just as many games as they did last, this, last season as they did this season. Because the season ticket base is already cranked up already. There's still a buzz about the Blue Jays right now. And with many of the Rogers properties out there with the radio and television, they're keeping the team very relevant in the news by, you know, charting the progress with players. And you know what? There is some, I'm sensing from some fans out there that people are seeing that, you know what, maybe... To be a winning team, you don't have to spend $250 million. I think there is a bit of a changing attitude out there with, amongst baseball fans. We're the dollar store market. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think because of advanced analytics and stuff like that, Scott, I think there is a belief out there that maybe being a value team is the smart way to go. And I only say that because of, some of, the, because of you know, teams like Kansas City teams like Cleveland that have won that do not have humongous, you know, 
top three or top five payrolls in Major League Baseball. So I do believe there may be a slight change in the attitudes out there. Here's the risk to that. And and it could well be. And look, you're absolutely right. Kansas City won with a smaller payroll. Pittsburgh was in the playoffs with a smaller payroll. We've seen teams that don't have the New York Yankees, Los Angeles Dodgers payroll do very well. So it's not impossible to do. The, the concern, if I'm a Blue Jays fan, my concern is I had four starter, five starters last year that essentially were healthy and that were really good. And four of them were really good. One of them was okay. Dickey was okay. The other guys were really good. I don't, A, believe that you can go through another season without one of them at least getting hurt. And B, I don't believe that you can go through another season where everybody is on their game and is good. And if you suddenly have problems, if you suddenly have some hiccups in that starting rotation and your batting lineup is a lot weaker because you're taking out Bautista, you're taking out Encarnacion, you're taking out a bunch of guys, now you run into problems. This whole thing now, basically, basically the Blue Jays strategy right now is riding on great starting pitching. And if that falters, you're in trouble. Well, I, I, I kind of have to disagree with you a little bit, Scott. Knock yourself that, out. It, it, just a, in, in the sense that, you know what? I think those pitchers are only going to get better. I think Aaron Sanchez is going to be better because you're not going to tinker with his innings limit this year. He could be better than he was last season. And in terms of the production for the Blue Jays, I think all we're seeing right now is a change in attitude. They're just not going to be the masters of the midway or whatever you want to call it. They're not going to be the guys that make, I mean, hey, let's be honest, the Rogers Center is, is a home run happy park to start with. But I think this is a team that maybe are sliding towards more. We just brought up Kansas City. We just talked about Cleveland getting to a World Series. As a team that is more about timely hitting and key RBIs more so at key spots. Because one complaint we've had about the Blue Jays over the years, the last couple of years, and we saw it, especially in that series against uh, the Royals in the ALCS there, ALCS, that this team struggle with to hit with runners in scoring position. Maybe this is a team that does better in that situation. That's not going to. That's going to trade in a single and a double for a home run or a triple. I, I, I don't think. I don't think that's impossible to believe. I, I will. I will go along with that. I think that's very likely because again, it drove people crazy last year when you would have a guy on second base and the next guy comes up to bat and looks like he wants to hit it all the way to San Diego. Just a single scores him. You realize a single just scores him. Just put the bat on the ball and find some green. That drove people nuts. But again, I think you're right too. Alex Sanchez should be better. But, but there's also a likelihood that some of those guys or one of those guys are going to be hurt. Jay Happ, I'm sorry, there's no way Jay Happ is going to be as good as he was this year again next year. He may be still pretty good, but he's not going to match what he did. No, I mean I don't see when I mean hey I mean hey when they picked him up for the bargain basement price of what they did, there's no way we ever thought he'd win 21 games. Not a chance. There's not a chance. And and you're right. I, do we think he'll win 21 again or 21 under 22 games? Game? I, I I don't see that. I'm picking 12. But, but, but 12 maybe, is the over under. But hey, but but maybe maybe uh, Stroman is a better pitcher than we saw because he was he was off last sure. year and he he was also the benefit. I mean, I, would, I think there was a run of about six or seven starts where he had, like, maybe four or five runs of run support. Maybe he wins more games. And we've also talked about this as well, too, that maybe the win-loss thing is, is slightly overrated. And if guys can just get you into the seventh inning, because the Toronto bullpen, uh, I think there's still some moves to be made there, but the Toronto bullpen is not bad. And we, we, they lose Cecil, but, I mean, Cecil was only a, a contributor for only half-season last year. 
So I'm not. I'm all I'm saying right now, Scott, is yeah, yeah, it's tough to see the Boston Red Sox spending money and getting these fantastic players. And you know what, Mitch Moreland is a wonderful player. I mean, the guy won the Gold Glove, you know, over at first base as well too, and, and it has a little bit of power. I mean, who won't have power at Fenway as well? But maybe a change in philosophy of this club because we've seen the home run style uh, of the Blue Jays for the last two years, and it's gotten them to the playoffs. It's gotten them, gotten them to the American League Championship Series, but it seems to fizzled out pretty good because I thought they were beaten pretty convincingly by the Royals and the Indians over the last couple of years. Maybe a change in philosophy is needed here. All right, before I let you go, I never thought I would actually say this. I never thought it would come down to Dexter Fowler as the savior of the Blue Jays franchise. <laughs> but, if you again, if you're a Blue Jays fan, Dexter Fowler is a guy who was an outfielder with the Chicago Cubs who won the World Series. He's now a free agent. The Jays really want him. They've offered him $15 million, reportedly offered him $15 million bucks a year over four years. St. Uh, Louis is the other team that is still in the mix with this guy, and there may be others that pop in, but right now it's those two. If you're a Blue Jays fan and Dexter Fowler signs with you, do you look at do you look at this as all being fixed? Well, I mean, I think people are going to be I think happy in one way because you got a World Series champion and he was outstanding in the postseason. I'll give him that too. Um he's 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 more athletic than what they have right now, but Kevin Pillar is going to have to move over. Oh, I don't think so. I think Fowler, well, now Fowler may only sign if, if he moves over. That may be a condition of signing. I, I, I think I think if he, if he comes to Toronto, this, the, the assumption is that he's going to be the center fielder, I, I would think. So we'll see what happens there. And you're right, I don't know, is he the savior? Absolutely not. But I think going back to the philosophy thing of this, of, of this management group, they aren't looking for saviors, they're looking for pieces. All right, and if Dexter Fowler snubs the Blue Jays and signs somewhere else, do Blue Jays fans throw up their hands and go, ah, oh, we're completely screwed now? <laughs> no, because I think they're happy. They, 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 there's a love affair with Kevin Pillar as it is right now. But I do believe, in, and I mean, in my humble opinion, I think an upgrade is needed. Is he spectacular with the catches? Yes, but he strikes out far too much for a center fielder. Well, I, I mean, I would happily keep him in the, in the outfield and hit him ninth or eighth and keep him in center field because he's such a good defensive player. I, but I don't think he should be hitting leadoff anymore, for sure. No, no, no. The, that, that experiment was, was awful. You know, it was entertaining, especially when he got on base with the giant oven mitt. <laughs> One quick thing that I happened to notice there, because I, I knew this was something that would really excite you as well. Um, Derek Jeter. Well, I, is- I wondered if you were going to bring that up. <laughs> Derek Jeter has his number two retired this year. He, the, the Yankees will have no single digits left in their lineup for anyone else to grab. Uh, all the numbers would be retired. So um, I, I'm, I'm presuming you're booking your ticket to... Uh, New York City? I have always said, and I get misconstrued and misquoted by you constantly, but I have always said that I think that Derek Jeter was a very good player, but I think he was overrated in the grand scheme of things that he was not one of the all-time greats of the game. Are you kidding me? If If Derek Jeter had been drafted by the San Diego Padres, we would never have heard his name except in passing. So he's a very good player. So his number being retired, I, I'm I'm not going to take issue with it. But if he and, and if he played in San Diego, his number may have been retired as well. But just don't tell me Derek Jeter is one of the all-time greats of baseball. He's I'm not. Saying, I'm just saying that Derek Jeter is a Hall of Fame baseball player. And if he had been drafted by Tampa Bay, he, he would have been though. a Hall of but Famer. He, he would have been an he, International League Hall of you're Famer. You're making up video games here. You're making up stuff. 
He would he have was been. drafted by the Yankees, so that's all we can go by. This and is he won five World Series. He was carried to five World Series. Bubba, come on. Wade Boggs and Roger Clemens carried him to the World Series. Diving into the stands, making that wonderful catch that we'll see a thousand times until we, we both pass away. Okay, so he's got some balance problems. That's, that's, that's <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Always appreciate the time, Bubba. Thanks, man. Uh, great chatting baseball with you in, in, in December. <laughs> that is uh, Bubba O'Neill. And, you know, we, we do joke around this, this whole thing about the Derek Jeter thing. Love to hear your thought on it. Radley at 900CHML.com if you are a baseball fan. I am of the position, as I just said, Derek Jeter was a very, very good baseball player. I would have liked to have had him on my team many of the years he played. But do not tell me that he is one of the all-time greats of baseball. He is a guy who was a great, or a very good, maybe great player who benefited massively from arriving on the New York Yankees at the right time when they were becoming a dynasty and willing to spend any amount of money to win. Luke also has, Luke has been just dying to get in on this one. We've got to go to a break. So you got about 20 seconds. Very quickly, because this is one of my favorite things. Uh, Derek Jeter, for the first half of his career, was a great shortstop, was never the best at his position at any one point in his career, and in the entire second half of his career was actively hurting the New York Yankees, costing them wins by being out on the field. And someone said to me today, they said, but look at all the big hits he got. And I say, yeah, he did. You know what? He did get a lot of big hits because he was in a lot of playoff games because of the team around him. And if you're in a lot of playoff games, you're going to get a lot of opportunities. And when you get a lot of opportunities and you're a good player, those hits, those plays are going to be big. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking things away from the guy as a really good player. Just please, please, don't tell me he's... Some people say he's in the top five. I've heard someone say he's in the top five players of all time. The only way Derek Jeter's the top five players of all time is if we have selective memory loss and only have five players in the history of Major League Baseball or something along those lines. I don't have time to explain anymore. I got to go to a commercial. Derek Jeter's fine. Just please, please retire his number, knock yourself out, have a great day at Yankee Stadium. Just let's not pretend that he's something he wasn't. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Everybody knows, everyone in our society, in our civilization knows, knows that religion is dying, right? Everybody knows that. Conservative, strict biblical theology is dead and gone and dusty and cold and old and all that stuff. If you don't believe anything, that's cool. If you have a liberal church, if you have a liberal theology, your church is bound to explode because everybody wants to do their thing is the thinking, right? Well... Maybe not. A new bit of research suggests that churches that are more liberal are shrinking. And yet those churches that follow the more old school mainline religious precepts are the ones that are actually doing well. This kind of flies in the face of everything we know. So is it true? Well, Dr. David Haskell is an associate professor of digital media and journalism, religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. He's the author of this study. He joins me now. Dr. Haskell, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure, Scott. Yeah, it's good to be here. You do know that what you are proposing does, in fact, fly in the face of everything we've now been told for years and years and years and years. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, if you look at uh, the writings of any number of mainline theologians, I'm thinking of people that your listeners may have heard of, like John Spong or uh, Diane Butler-Bass, or there are a lot of others out there, they will tell you that the way to make a church grow is to relax the rules and to make sure that uh, 
it's in line with the culture. And uh, what we did was we went and we studied mainline Protestant churches. Now, these are the biggest churches, the biggest denominations in Canada. You've got your Anglican, your United, your Presbyterian, and your Lutheran. And we found those that were growing, and we compared them to those that were declining. And the significant difference was the ones that were growing were actually practicing a conservative Protestant theology. And again, I go back to my point, this flies in the face of what we have been told, because we have been told, I think, or the the belief is people don't want rules. You want to have truth as you believe it. You want to be able to have your truth. You don't want a strict structure to have to follow. So why then, what, what have you been able to ascertain, first of all, is the reason why what you found is what you found? Well, the, the first thing that we would say is you've got to get, we also, in addition to the surveys we did, so we surveyed over 2,200 uh, congregants in these churches, and we also surveyed the clergy. And what we found was that uh, the congregants and the clergy in the declining churches, they were liberal. And by liberal, let's define that a little bit better. It means that they're taking the Bible more metaphorically. If it says something like... Uh, uh, what's a classic one for Christmas? Well, that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, they'd say, nah, you know, it's probably a metaphor. Uh, and, but if you look at those growing churches, they take that seriously, literally. They say, yeah, he was born of a virgin. Yeah, he rose from the dead. What's going on there is when people are looking for a, a religion, they actually are looking for one that is going to claim that it has the answer. That, that any, any product that is going to say it's the best versus another product that says I'm just as good as the others, well, the one that says it's the best is going to have an advantage. So definitely that's going on there in these conservative churches. But even beyond that, uh, they offer something. They offer uh, a group that really has a unified idea. It's a fancy term, but we call it an external locus of, of authority, where they say, what can we agree on? And it's going to go beyond us as individuals, but what can we agree on as a community? And they have this one source, and it's their, the way they interpret the Bible, again, more literally than most. And so they say, we agree on this. And when you all agree on something, it's like having a mission statement if you're a business. If you've got a, mi- a mission statement, it actually lets you all go in the same direction. And any business or group that can go in the same direction together with a mindset that is similar, it's going to succeed. Why did you start looking into this? What was it that prompted you to start researching this? Uh, well, a number of things. Uh, first of all, even in my own hometown, um, I grew up in Chatham, Ontario, and I remember back around 2012, I was home for Thanksgiving, and my mom was telling me about the church that she used to go to, and it was closing down. I said, oh, well, you can go to another one. She said, no, that one's closing down, too. And as a sociologist of religion, I knew about church decline, and, and I wanted to be a little bit more informed, so I started reading the literature on it, and I saw that there was no consensus. In fact, the, what the researchers were saying was there's no connection between theology and church growth or decline. There's no connection. And then you had... So the, in other words, the, the, what they're teaching is essentially irrelevant to whether or not the church is doing well. It's a social club. Well, yeah. If you read the other research on this, they would say that Really, it is about whether they have a clear mission. You know, if you've got a leader, a pastor who has clear mission, then you're going to see growth in the church. Well, when we started to do our statistical analysis, we said, no, 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 what, what these other studies have identified is not the cause of growth, but something that is caused itself. And the thing that was causing the clear mission, again, was 
this reliance on a pretty literal interpretation of the Bible. So, you know, when we, we and the other thing, these other researchers, when we looked at their method, the way that they determined theology in an entire congregation was by asking one person, the clergy uh, person, one question, uh, and, or maximum three, and it was something like, are you guys liberal or are you guys conservative? And when we looked at that, we said, how can you get an accurate read statistically using one question? So we, we asked 20 questions. We asked questions about religious history. We asked questions about specific beliefs. Do you believe that miracles occur? And when you ask better questions, you get better results. But how exactly do you measure growth, whether or not a church is growing or diminishing? And the reason I say that, it sounds like a dumb question, but when you go to church, when someone goes to church, there's not a login, there's not a sign-in sheet to be able to have actual tangible numbers. No, but every church, every church uh, has a counter, or at least in the main line, it's a pretty established tradition that they count the number of people who have come in the pews. They do it a number of ways. You can tell, you can tell how many bulletins you handed out. Uh, they sometimes just have a person up in the balcony who will count the number of heads, and they keep pretty rigorous, pretty rigorous numbers. And it's from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. So even if they did miscount, you can get a pretty good general accounting if you look at it longitudinally or, or over a long time. But what we did, and again, this was to make it rigorous and so that it wasn't just a flash in the pan, we wanted to see the books for the last 10 years. And we looked at the books for the last 10 years, and we said, we've got to see 2% growth annually for the last 10 years. So it has to be consistent for somebody to qualify, for one of these churches to qualify as a growing church in our sample. And having that kind of rigorous criteria really did eliminate some, because we actually had churches where uh, a denominational head office said, yeah, yeah, here's a growing church. Go and check out this church. And we went there and we looked at the books and we said, you know what, you did have a couple good years back maybe two or three years ago, but you're not growing. In fact, now you're in decline. So it was a pretty rigorous standard. So we know that those churches that we did find that were growing, uh, they are the legitimate deal. Now, I don't know if you can speak to this because I don't think your research went that far, but this idea of following a conservative doctrine, does this extend, do you have any reason to believe this would extend to Judaism, to Islam? Does this follow in the same pattern in all religions? You know, uh, we didn't do that research, but when you look at what other people have done, there has been, um, uh, there was a study done uh, within Jewish communities, within Reform synagogues. Now, Reform synagogues are actually the most liberal of the synagogues. So they're a lot like the liberal mainline churches that you'd see in Canada. But uh, there was a study done, I can't remember the author now, but it was back in the 90s, and what he did was he, he looked at those reformed Jewish synagogues that were growing, and one of the main things that he noticed was they were, more so than the others that were declining, they were embracing a more rigorous ritual behavior, and they were also practicing what, what in terms of the Reformed tradition, was a more conservative theology. So we do see evidence of that in other traditions. Do we see anything about ages? Because one of the things that I think a lot of people believe is that if you go to a church now, the hair of most of the people sitting in the pews is going to be gray. Well, in the growing churches that we went to, in the growing mainline churches, uh, we actually saw that they were younger families, they were families with kids, and the way that it actually broke out in our sample was that the congregants, the, people, the attendees in our declining churches, the majority, and I'd say, uh, I'm just going from, I'd, it was at least 
two-thirds. Two-thirds were over 60. It was exactly the opposite in the growing churches. Really? Where, yeah, where two-thirds were under 60, with a significant portion, you know, in that beautiful 18 to 35 belt that uh, you always look for if you're a marketer. You wrote in a piece for, I can't remember which newspaper this was in now. I, I know you've written a number of, uh, of newspaper pieces about this, explaining your research. You wrote this, I'll, I'll quote it. But for a church to actually grow, the attendees must feel they need to go. For a host of reasons centering on their more literal interpretation of the Bible, churches adhering to conservative Protestant doctrine seem better at eliciting that response. What do you mean by they feel they need to go? Well, when I'm saying that, it, it's going back to the doctrine itself. So, and it's talking specifically about Christian doctrine here. So, the traditional Christian doctrine was, if, if you are part of this religious community, and, and the way that they would express it is, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are entitled to some benefits, both in this life and in the next. So the benefits in this life, uh, God has a plan for your life, uh, things are going to work out for you, um, you pray and you get an answer, uh, so, and, and these are things they believe strongly, right? And, and then on the other side of that, on, in the afterlife, they would see that they have this, uh, this heavenly existence, or however they want to interpret it. The point being that those kind of things are actually beyond just casual, oh, I wish this were the case. It's like, this transformed my life here. This could transform my life in the afterlife. So it becomes something that's very profound, uh, very intimate to their existence. Whereas if we contrast that with what was going on in the liberal churches, where it's, you know what, I, I, I like going to be with my friends. Uh, and, and again, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here. I don't want you to think that this was the case for everyone in, in a liberal church, but where you don't take the doctrine as seriously, you, it's not a life and death issue. It's not um, hmm. uh, an issue that if you didn't go, uh, it's not really going to have a major impact on your life. So it's that mindset, that want to go versus need to go, and the need to go actually stems from the theology. You know, as I say, I read a number of pieces that you had written about this prior to you coming on tonight, and i got to tell you, what, what the line that sort of came to mind or the thought that came to mind about what you're saying, if I could break it down, and I may be simplifying it too far, is that it sounds like you're saying that the church's that ask people to become more like the God that's in the Bible are the ones that are growing, and the one the churches that want God to become more like them are the ones that are falling apart. Yeah, I wish I'd used that in one of the pieces. That sounds good. I'll steal it from you later. No, but it, it just seems like it's about people want to have something that they can attach themselves to that's bigger than them and that's not just sort of rolling with the times. No, that's exactly it. Listen, if people wanted to do community events, they would go and join the Lions Club, or they'd join the Rotary, or they'd join Amnesty International, because all those are great organizations that do great work. But when someone has a specific need that's a religious need, a spiritual need, they want to go somewhere where they can get some very solid answers. And I'm not arguing for the rightness or wrongness of any theology. That's not my job as a sociologist. I'm just, what I'm saying is, what we looked at was, when somebody believes this, this is what we can predict will happen. And we did it with some really rigorous statistics. So why do you think so many churches today are scared to do this then? It's seemingly scared to do it because so many obviously, or, or maybe not even scared to do it. That's probably the wrong word. Why are so many loath to do it? I think that uh, 
churches that are practicing liberal theology, they're, they're not doing it because, um, because they haven't thought through their doctrinal positions. They, they've thought through their positions. They've said, well, in, in light of the scientific evidence, perhaps, it, I found it really hard to believe that uh, a dead man could rise again. Right, and and so they have trouble getting their minds around that, and they they want to be intellectually respectable, and I don't think that uh, that they come to it lightly. Now, when we interviewed the clergy who were part of these growing churches who were conservative in their theology, we asked them questions like that. We said, "Listen, uh, how how do you articulate these ideas, which to the uninitiated or to people who are more liberal seem really, you know, far fetched?" And, and they were saying, you know what, the existence of the world is far-fetched. The whole, the whole idea that we could even be here in the first place, that's, that's a first miracle. We have to accept that it happened. How can we explain that? Uh, they move on. I mean, these were really some articulate people. In fact, I would point out that the clergy and the growing churches, uh, it wasn't a significant number, so it's not statistically significant, but they actually had more doctoral degrees than those in the declining. So it wasn't like they were naive. They were really well-educated people. Again, when they were talking about where they would go with their belief on the resurrection, some of them were talking about uh, quantum mechanics and, and the, the, how energy can become matter and how there is um, entanglement and things that were really, even as a sociologist, over my head, but they'd really thought of this thoroughly. And, and so there's a way in. For people who are conservatives, but they're also intellectual, I think that uh, both science and current trends in biblical studies are giving a little bit more credibility than what may have been the case even 40, 50 years ago. Just before I let you go, I can't imagine that putting out a piece of research like this has been met with universal praise and agreement. (laughs) No, not at all. But you know what? Uh, That's a good thing, because what you want are discussions to happen. And... And as my research partners and I have said, the reason that we wanted our first paper, and we've got five papers out on this, but the first one is called Theology Matters, and, uh, and it's a very quantitative, statistically heavy paper. And the reason we wanted to really move ahead with the statistics first was numbers don't have a doctrinal position. They don't have a religious predilection. Numbers are numbers, right? And so we wanted just to get the facts on this out there and say, listen, here's what it's saying. Now you can have the discussion. Dr. David Haskell, Associate Professor of Digital Media and Journalism, Religion and Culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. You can go online. As I say, I found a whole bunch of different things that he's written on this. Uh, You can go and read the same things if you're interested, if you're more interested in, in digging more deeply into this. Dr. Haskell, thanks for the time tonight. Really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Uh, An interesting topic, for sure, because, because the perception, I think, for a lot of people, and sometimes, in a lot of cases, the perception is not unreal. Church attendance is way down. We know this. We know this for a fact. We know that we don't live in a culture that is the same as it used to be, that on Sunday everybody would get dressed up in their best clothes and go to church, and the church pews were packed. We know that is not the case. So why is that not the case? It's an interesting bit of research into that. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.